God, I thank you that your word is so rich and so full. God, that we can chew on just a few little verses, God, and and get so much out of it, Lord. And honestly, Lord, Holy Spirit, you direct us and you give us what we need. And the next time we come back to the same scripture, you could give us something completely different that's in there as well. And so I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's that rich, God. Thank you, Lord, that we're never going to get to the bottom of you or your word, God. So, God, today I'm asking, would you honestly, Lord, would you just speak? God, no one's here to hear a man. Lord, we want to hear from you. And so, God, would you just do that, Lord? Would you speak to us, God, through your word? Father, I ask now, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our hearts, God. Lord, give us the freedom, Lord, and the joy of understanding, God, of wisdom and of all that you want to give us today, Father, that we would not walk out the same way we walked in, God. Lord, that we would be changed by your word. Lord, that we would have a deeper understanding of who you are through your word, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys, last week, you guys remember, we've been kind of doing like this character study through the book of Matthew, and we talked about all these different people, and then we've been slowly being introduced to some of them. And two weeks ago, we were introduced to John the Baptist, and we saw that he was a little bit of a wild man, to say the least, right? He was literally a wild man, right? And so he made Marty Stauffer look tame. You guys, half of you don't even know who Marty Stauffer is, do you? Okay, anyway, it's okay. But we looked at these guys, and we looked at how John the Baptist interacted with the religious leaders. And we talked about the fact that these religious leaders thought they had it all figured out. They knew everything they needed to know. The law was on their side. They were the children of Abraham. They had it figured out. They didn't need anything from from anybody else because they had it all within themselves. That's what they thought. And we saw John the Baptist just totally rip them up. Just tear at the heart, like stab them in the heart and be like, you guys, what are you doing? Right? Called them a brood of vipers. Very insulting. But the, the whole reason he was doing that, guys, is because he had thousands of people showing up and they was like, come out, repent from the way you've been. Repent from the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people that are leading you astray and come back to the heart of God. Come back to the heart of understanding that it's only through God that you get anywhere in life, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. None of us have any, any way to God other than Jesus. Amen? So today, guys, we're going to be introduced to Jesus. We're going to look, begin to look at Jesus. So chapter 3, starting at verse 13, says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You guys... Just to give you an idea, here's Jesus. He's finally coming on the scene. And you guys got to understand, right? We're reading, this is chapter 3. We haven't been in this book very long. But in the scheme of a lifetime, 
we've read and we saw, right? We looked a couple last week at the fact that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, right, was there and he went mute because an angel told him, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. And we went through all that stuff. But this is like, at this point, at verse 13, Jesus is 30 years old. He's around 30 years old. Jesus had been just living his life, guys. Living his life in pretty much complete obscurity. He had served his parents faithfully. We read that throughout scripture, right? In the different gospels that we read in Luke 2, 46 and 47, it tells us that when he was 12, you guys remember the story, right? He went and they were going back and then they went and they're going back home, right? And they, they were like, wait, where's Jesus? And they go back into Jerusalem and they find him and he's there in the temple and he's, he's asking them questions and he's listening to the teachers. And they were like astounded, just amazed at the fact that this kid had such understanding. So we know that about him. We know that in places like Matthew 13 and John 6, specifically 1355 and John 642, that it can be assumed that Jesus just took on the work of his dad, his stepdad of carpentry. Right? Remember whenever he went up into the, into the, uh, synagogue and he, oh, they opened a scroll and he read, remember? And they were like, who, where's he get this wisdom? This, isn't that Joseph's son? The carpenter's son? And then in, in John, it actually makes it sound like, well, isn't, isn't he the, the son of Mary? Like, didn't he, isn't he just doing what everybody else does? Like what his di- stepdad did? So we can assume that he had just walked out these 30 years living his life, doing his thing, living in complete obscurity. And I want to tell you guys, if you're here and you feel like you were meant for more, you probably are. But can I encourage you guys that if we look at the life of Jesus, he spent over 95% of his entire life in absolute obscurity. He spent over 95% of his life just doing life. And of course, he did it in such a way that was perfect. We know that. But can you guys get your head around that? Because I think in America, we want to be the next flash in the pan, or we want to be the next whatever. I played drums, and I can tell you that I moved to Philadelphia and lived on ramen noodles for three straight years because I wanted to be signed to a label, and I wanted to go on tour. That's how I wanted to live my life, and obviously that didn't happen, right? And I'm so glad it didn't, right? Ambition is not wrong. Selfish ambition is. Right? We see people being ambitious. There are people in the world that are like missionaries that are ambitious to see God move in other countries. There's nothing wrong with that. The ambition to be like, I want my name to be in lights. There's a problem there. And sometimes, can I tell you that our most holy ambitions can become selfish very quickly if we don't watch it. There's a guy named Brother Lawrence. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him. He was a monk. And I love his heart because his book, he wrote this book. He was basically illiterate, so he didn't really write it. He talked to them about, talked to the other monks, and the other monks wrote it down for him. But his whole heart is this, guys, is seeing the sacred in the ordinary. It's, it's realizing that there's a sacred act in washing dishes. That there is a sacred act in getting to commune with God in everything you do. For me personally, I love vacuuming. Because I can sing praise and worship and nobody's ears are hurting, right? <laughs> Nobody hears it except the vacuum and it doesn't care, right? I can pray to the Lord. 
I can speak out loud to the Lord while I'm vacuuming and I can just pray. And I, you guys, when I'm, when I'm vacuuming in here, when I get the opportunity to vacuum in here, can I tell you guys, I pray for you guys. I think about like, oh yeah, that's where Kathy sits. Lord, would you watch over her? God, this is, this is your congregation. Lord, would you move? Father, I don't know what they're doing right now today, Lord, but would you, would you use them? Do you guys understand just the idea of our ordinary everyday life and how important and amazing it is? And so I want to encourage us and challenge us that there is, there's sacredness in the ordinary life that we live. And if you feel like you're called to more, can you just trust God that he knows that your timing? He knows the time that you're supposed to be there. Can I tell you that at 30 years old, I can tell you that I never thought I was going to be here. Never in my life. If you asked me at 30 years old, where are you going to be? I would have never said that I was going to be a senior pastor of a church and that was what my life was going to look like because I was still in the military and I'm like, I'm going to retire from the military, go get a better job and do something else, right? That's what I thought. And then around 35, when God called me to the ministry, I'm like, okay, I'm going to retire from the Air Force and then I'm going to go into full-time ministry and I'm going to be a missionary in some far-off country. That's what I wanted. Do you guys see how just walking faithfully and saying, Lord, it's your plan, it's not mine. Lord, I've got my ambitions and what I desire, but I'm asking you to change my heart to make it into what you want it to be. And so here I am. And I'm so thankful that I didn't go my way. And so for all of us, guys, can you understand, especially you younger folks in here, that God has a plan for your lives. God has a plan for every one of our lives. God has a plan. And can you trust him that his plan is the best? And it also doesn't mean don't strive for your dreams. It also doesn't mean that you don't go to God and be like, Lord, I have an ambition to serve you in this way. But trust him that he has the exact way that's going to look. I still get to play the drums. Right? I still get to enjoy the the gift that God gave me. I know y'all probably don't. Y'all are like, oh my goodness, too loud. Right? But this idea of understanding that Jesus himself spent 95, and for all you mathematicians, I'm sure it's more because three years is all he did of active ministry. Three years. Three to four at max. Think about that. 30 years of his life in complete obscurity, the last three, and then he died. We don't know what our lives look like. We don't know what lies ahead of us. But guys, we can walk faithfully in what we're doing right now. Amen? Let's look at Luke chapter 16, verse 10. This is Jesus talking, right? He says this. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. What's Jesus saying? Guys, you might be like, I'm destined for more. I'm supposed to be a pastor. I'm supposed to be doing this. This is what my life looks like. My manager stinks. I could do a better job. Whatever your thought is, can I tell you, be faithful in the little thing. Be faithful where you're at because it matters. If you're faithful in little things, guys, you'll be faithful in much. There was a pastor friend of mine or guy that we knew in in Idaho, and it was so funny because he went to Bible college and he came out and he went back to Calvary Boise and he was like, I'm called here. I'm supposed to be a pastor here. And the pastor was like, 
I didn't hear that, but okay. So he was like, fine, sure, go on to the maintenance crew. And this guy walked around and he was telling the story about how he, he's like, man, I was watering the flowers and I was making them prettier, the trees and everything was perfect and it was amazing. And he was like telling other people like, man, look at this. Look at how much greener it is. And it was nobody had the heart to tell him until later. They're like, dude, we had to go buy all brand new trees because you made it all mold because they're all fake. <laughs> But did you understand his heart? His heart was like, I'm going to do the best I can. And if that best is literally putting water in a fake plant that I'm not supposed to do, well, I'm going to do it the best I can. God honors the little things. God honors those things. Hopefully you guys realize and go and ask a question like, is this real? Should I water this? (laughs) Because that was a lot of money for them. But the idea is is that... (laughs) You know, it's, an, it's kind of a funny story, but the truth is, man, is his heart was in the right place. His heart was to just be the best at what he was doing at the moment. Whatever job you're in, guys, do the best you can. Do it as unto the Lord. It says here that John tried to permit or not permit Jesus from being baptized. This is the only gospel we get this insight in. And it, you guys realize why? Because here's John the Baptist and his whole job. His whole life's ministry and everything that he was doing was not to bring glory to himself, but to literally point everybody to Jesus, literally to point everyone to to the Messiah, right? And here he is, and he's like, man, you know, he knew. We don't know exactly how he knew, but he knew, right? It says to us that when he was born, that the angel told Zacharias, like the Holy Spirit will be in him before he's even born. And we know that when Mary showed up, you guys remember that story, right? In Luke, where when Mary showed up, that he leapt inside of his mom's belly because he knew. He knew. So there's something about John that God gave him special insight. And he knew. And so here comes Jesus on the scene. And he's like, there he is. There he is. That's the guy I've been telling you about this whole time. And Jesus comes to him and he's like, I want to be baptized. And of course, John is like, what are you talking about? Dude, I need your baptism. I need your fire. I need you. I know, what can I offer you? But do you guys see what Jesus said? He said, he's like, look, let's do this so that we can fulfill all righteousness. You guys understand that Jesus didn't just come to earth to die and rise again. That is the main reason he came. But do you understand that he lived these 30 years in obscurity, just living life, just walking through things, making dinner, right? Taking care of his mom, falling down when he was a kid and skinning his knee, doing all the things that we do in life so that he could understand us, so that he could be in heaven and be our savior and be like, I know what that feels like. I went through that. This, his whole life matters. And so here he is and he's, he's beginning his ministry. He's not repenting from sin. Let's flip over to 2 Corinthians. It tells us clearly that there was no repentance for him of sin in this baptism. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus wasn't being baptized because he needed to repent of anything. But you guys see how this act of repentance fulfilled all righteousness. Because why? Because he's totally coming into our world and saying, listen, I get it. I'm God in flesh and I'm going through this because you should go through this. You need to die to yourself. Jesus didn't have to die to himself. He did it literally later. You understand? 
When we baptize, when we do it, we talked about it last week, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of our death in the flesh and the rising again to new life in Jesus. And we don't need it for salvation. Jesus already did that work before baptism. But it's just a symbol of that. And so for Jesus, here he is and he's, he's doing this because he knows our frame. He knows it well. He knows it inside and out. There's not one thing that he has not gone through that he can't look or you come to him in prayer that he can't say, I know it. I get it. And I love that he's that. I love that he did these things, that he's completely aware of our humanity. I love it because, guys, I don't want to go to a God that's aloof. You look at every other world religion, guys. God's either aloof, Allah, the, the Muslim. God is a tyrant, right? He'd just as easily snap your neck as to show you love. So many other gods, you've got to do it yourself. You've got to pull yourself up, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, these type of religions that are like, you can get closer. You can do these things. It's all about you getting there. This is the only religion that says, religion that says, no, you can't. You can't get anywhere. Matter of fact, you are never, ever, ever going to get anywhere without the one and only person that came and lived the perfect life for you. Do you understand? The second reason I think that he did this to fulfill all righteousness is because this was a new season in his life. Jesus went from being the carpenter that at this point in history, Joseph was not mentioned anywhere. Joseph had probably already passed away. We know most of the time the men were older than the women. Jesus was the oldest son. So, of course, it would have been his responsibility to take care of the family at that point. So he had been doing this for such a long time. And who knows if his brothers had become old enough that he's like, You're, it's okay, now it's your turn, right? You're going to take care of Jude or James, right? The books that, back later in the Bible that are Jesus' half-brothers. So did he do that? And he just came on the scene. It seems like it. And so he made this trek from Galilee out to, or from where he was, out to uh, the wilderness to be baptized. And he's beginning this new phase of his life. And so we see here that when Jesus came up out of the water, guys, does you see all three members of the Trinity? You guys realize that there's no mention of the Trinity in the Bible. That word never, ever exists, but there's tons of evidence of the Trinity in the Bible. I say that because some people get all weirded out, right? I have relatives that are like, there's, there's no such thing as the Trinity. And I'm like, oh, so you don't believe that Jesus and God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all one? And they're like, yeah, I totally believe that. I'm like, okay, you believe in the Trinity. Nope, I don't believe in the Trinity because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Just because the word isn't there doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so here we see Jesus coming up out of the water, the Spirit descending like a, like a dove. It doesn't mean he was a dove. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was literally a dove, but it took some form that looked like a dove or was like a bird of some sort or something that came down. And I love that it says it was like a dove because what was a dove? A sacrificial animal. It was, a, it was an animal of peace. I love that. So here's this dove that comes down or something like a dove that comes down and rests upon him. It says it alighted upon him. It, it stayed on him. It sat on him. It didn't move. And then it says that the father speaks out about how well-pleased he is with his son. And guys, I want to stop here and talk because here it says in verse 17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. Doesn't that sound like, boy, Jesus, you did the right thing and so daddy's happy. How often do you guys in your Christian walks feel that way? Like, man, Lord, today I did good. I know you're happy with me today. Lord, today I sucked. (laughs) You're not happy. Guys, 
Can I give you a little insight? This is in the aorist tense in the Greek. It means it's already done. God wasn't saying, man, I'm so glad you got baptized. I'm happy about that. He was saying this, I'm already pleased with you. I'm already happy with you. And he says the same thing to us. If you've accepted Christ, can I tell you, he is well pleased with his son, which means because your blood is on, his blood is on you, that he is well pleased with you. If you're not a Christian and you're here, guys, God's not mad at you. If he was mad at you, I promise you, I don't think you would have sent his son to die. He loves you. God's word tells us that he loved the world so much that he sent Jesus. So there's not one person in here that can say, oh, God's mad at me. Oh, God doesn't love me. God doesn't like me. Look at my life. Oh, man, God. No, God loves you. God loves you. Get your head on that, on, around that. Christian, get your head around that. Get your head around that. God loves you, regardless of your actions. We know in God's word that that doesn't mean that we take his grace for a doormat, right? That we wipe our feet on it like it's nothing. Quite the opposite, guys. My wife loves me dearly, so I don't want to do something that's going to hurt her. Right? My family trusts me. So I want to do my very best to be trustworthy. Do you see how it's the same with God? God loves me so much. He sent his son. I want to do nothing more than to live for him. It's not the other way around. It's a clear sign of the fruit, right? We talked about that. With the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't have any fruit. All their fruit was bad fruit because they were like, I've got this on my own. I don't need you, God. I don't need any of this other stuff. I've got this on my own. And their fruit showed it. Pride, arrogance. It's a good check to our heart, isn't it? If we go to God and we're like, ah, yes, God, you're lucky you have me. I hope none of us do that. Right? But honestly, sometimes I think I might have been there. I'm just being real. There's been times when God's had to check me. Right? Like in hockey, you're just like, bunk up against the wall. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm wrong. Right? <laughs> Thanks, God. I needed that. <laughs> you guys, remember that God's out of time. He's outside of time. He sees you as already a finished project. So live your life in light of that. Accept God's grace. When you make a mistake and you say, Lord, I repent, I'm sorry, forgive me, leave it there. It's done. God's word tells us that he forgot it. So the next time you come around again, and I do this sometimes where I'm like, oh God, you know I messed up and I know I've already apologized, but I feel like I need to do it again. And God's like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. Right? Because he's like, move on. Keep walking with me. Chapter four. Almost done, guys. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You guys notice it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness? This wasn't something that he was like, um, how do I get back home? And he got lost. No, he went into the wilderness by, his, by the Spirit. The Spirit led him there. And again, here we are looking at who Jesus is. Jesus living his life and saying, I will know you. I will know your frame. I will know every part of you. And so he's led by the spirit. He goes up to be tempted by the devil. Not a demon, but Satan himself. That's important. Because can I tell you guys that for us, yes, we are tempted sometimes. 
But I would say a, a large percentage of the time, you don't even need temptation. Your demon is back there like, yeah, I was going to do something, but man, they did a good enough job on their own, right? Like we walk into our own garbage half the time, Amen. right? Unless you're different than me. But the truth is, is that we all do have temptation, right? And we know that God's word tells us that the Lord allows everything in our lives. So there's not one thing in our lives that we can be like, what is happening, God? You didn't know this was going to come down because he's like, yes, I did. And I allowed it in your life. But the reality is, and it's important here, he's being tempted by Satan himself. I don't think Satan really cares about any of us specifically. He's not, um, he's not omnipresent. He can't be at all places like God can. He's only got one place to be at one time. And I think he's dealing with much bigger folks than all of us. Would you agree with that? I think we got some little buck private demon imp that's like, eh, eh, you know, like just doing his thing, like, yay, right? Like annoying us and poking us and being weird to us. But like, here's Jesus walking and Satan himself shows up because of course, Jesus, the son of God. And so he says here that he tempted him. And I want you to notice that it, that temptation began after 40 days of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Think about that. I want to say that fasting is a good thing. It means denying your flesh. So it's not always food. It can be. Most of the time it is, right? People choose food, but it can be fasting from a lot of different things. And in that fasting and that dedication uh, or the tearing away of your flesh, it's dedicating it to that time to God. And so if you're skipping lunch every day, you skip it and you spend time in prayer. You feed on the word. And that's the idea of fasting. And guys, can I tell you that fasting for us is important. So if you've never done it, I would encourage you to do it prayerfully right? Don't do it because you think you're going to twist God's arm because that can't happen. Some people do it for that, right? Like, man, if I fast this long, God better give me that Lamborghini, right? <laughs> We're not doing it for that. Why do we do it? Why do we fast, guys? Because we want to hear God clear more clearly. People fast over major decisions. My wife and I have fasted over things that were like, Lord, what do I do with this? How do we deal with our kid in this situation? And so we fast and we spend time before the Lord because I, I want to hear more clearly. And so I take away things in my flesh. And for me, if you can't tell, I love food. And so food usually is a good one to take away because, man, I'm like my, my belly growls. And I'm like, Lord, I need to spend time with you. God, this time's dedicated to you, not to my flesh. And so it's such a great thing. But do you also see this, that here was Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then Satan shows up. And can I say to us guys, when we step out in faith, when we step out and we're like, I'm going to do something for you, Lord, because I feel like you want me to, I'm telling you without fail, the enemy will show up and punch you because that's what he does, right? He doesn't fight fair. He's your enemy for a reason. He's going to take every advantage. And the second you step out, he's like, oh yeah, watch this. And he pops you to try to push you back to try to say, nope, get back in that comfort zone. Don't move. Man, why did I even do that to begin with? That's what he wants you to think. And so here we see Jesus dealing with this. Dealing with every aspect of humanity. Let's read verse 3. It says this. Now when the temper, or I'm sorry, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 7 said, or verse 7 says, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You guys see that Jesus was tempted in all the same ways we were tempted. He was tempted in every way we were. Let's flip over to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 16. So these, this is John the Apostle, right? Writing in a letter and he's saying basically like, these are the three categories of sin, essentially is what he's saying in this verse. And it says this in verse 16 of, of chapter 2. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You guys see how literally, here's John writing that years later, but it's true here. What did Satan tempt him with? The lust of the flesh. You're hungry, make these rocks into bread. Your, your flesh is crying out for food because you're hungry. You can do this. And I want you guys to understand that it says where he was saying, where the devil's saying like, oh, like if you are, the actual Greek there is actually saying it more like this. Since you are. Now think about this. Satan was probably there when he was baptized. He's probably watching. He probably heard God say, I'm well pleased with you. And so here's Satan coming after 40 days and saying, look, since you're the son of God, like father God says you are, then why do this? You can do this. You're capable. And he was capable. He could have turned an entire mountain in a huge donut and ate it. He could have done anything he wanted to do. Right? Like, it's not impossible for Jesus to have done this. But you understand that he's like, I am here for a very specific purpose. So I'm not going to turn it into an eclair, even though I could. Right? Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what every other human would do. Let me say that again. I'm going to do what every other, I'll say it this way, what every other, other Christian or human should do. What did he do? Spoke the word. You guys see that the pride of life is here in the second one or third one, actually. Throw yourself down so you can be rescued. It's the pride of life, isn't it? How much? I mean, I remember my mom, I was on the phone, you know, I was heading out to Iraq and my mom's like, don't go, don't go, it's dangerous. You know, you might die. And I'm like, it's totally the pride of life. And I, yeah, she's my mom. So I think God forgave her for that, right? Like she, she didn't want me to die. But the truth is, and I told her this, I'm like, mom, if God wants me to die, I could do it right here while we're talking on the phone, right? Like we don't control that moment. Why do we have so much pride in our life to think that we've got one minute more than we're supposed to get? And to think that we have one minute less than we're supposed to have, right? And I'm not talking about being dumb. I'm just talking about living your life. I'm not talking about doing 150 miles an hour down the road and being like, watch this, I'm going to hit a cement culvert. Like, no, <laughs> that's, that's silly. That's dumb. I'm talking about just living your life. You don't have to worry about what God's got for you. You really don't. Do you see that if he says, Satan said, look, lift up your eyes. I'm taking you up on this mountain. I'll give you all this. All you have to do is bow down to me. Do you guys see how that's the lust of the eyes? 
Jesus went through every last temptation. He understands our frame entirely, guys. And I, like I said already, how did he answer each one? With God's word. Can I ask you guys a question, a rhetorical question? I want you to think about this. We have freedom to read this Bible. I have bookshelves full of different translations of the Bible. Bookshelves. Full. I'm sure you guys have more than just one Bible in your house. You realize people in other countries have a snippet of one of the Gospels, let's say. The Gospel of John, they might have the first three chapters of the Gospel of John, and it means their life if they're caught with it, and they treasure it, and they read it, and they memorize it, and they want it because they want to just hand it off to the next person so they can open their eyes to what God is doing in their life. And, and they, it matters to them. So why, guys, if we have the most access than any other country, if we have more time, if we have more freedom, why are we the most illiterate country in the Bible? Why? Why don't we know God's word? I'm talking to me too. I read a research, uh, a uh, study that was done by Lifeway Research in 2018, so not that long ago. This was a study they did, and they asked all these Christians that attended, and this is the thing, attended church every Sunday or, or most Sundays, that they attended church, they considered themselves strong Christian believers, and here was the question that they answered. One out of five of them said they never Never, and that's the word, read the Bible outside of church. One out of five. And now think about this with COVID. If we were to take this today, those one out of fives, how many of them are even coming back to church? How many of them have said, you know what? It wasn't really that important to me all the rest of the week, so why Sunday really matter? And so when we're looking and we're seeing, guys, that America is the most biblically illiterate country when we should not be, do you understand that it, it matters when we look and we see that Jesus, who could have literally said, Satan, I would just want to smush you. He could have done anything he wanted, but yet what did he do? He, he chose to answer with God's word, with his word. So how do you think we're supposed to answer the enemy? The same way. You guys, Ephesians 6 talks about the, the, the whole armor of God. And did you guys know that the sword of the spirit, the Bible, is the only offensive weapon we have in that whole chapter? The only offensive weapon we have is this. The only offensive weapon Jesus used was the word that he had at the time, which is the Old Testament, right? He, he gave what he had. It's the only offensive weapon. And so if it's our one offensive weapon, guys, why does it sit dusty on our shelves? Why are we not taking the time to dig in and to read it and to just just chew on it and understand it and, and just get it? Can we be surprised at all that not only are we the most biblically illiterate, but we also have so much compromise in the church today. We have so much compromise. We have so much struggle with things that are like, man, read your word and know it. I promise you, God will change your heart in it. And instead, we're like back to this place where we're like, God's not happy with me. Why? Well, because I didn't do a good job today. You don't get God's word. You don't understand it. God loves you. He wants you to know him more. And I promise that as you do that, your heart will be changed. Guys, it's just, it's not even, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. Listen, if this is my sword to go into battle, God help me. I want to know what this feels like. I want to understand how to hold it and how to wield it. 
I want to know how to encourage people with it. I want to know how to, how to be used by God with his word. It's important. In conclusion, I know we're going a little long, sorry. You guys, we see that Jesus walked in perfect obedience. He went from the mountaintop experience of the baptism to literally the lowest of lows in the wilderness. He understands everywhere we are. There's not a place we walk that he hasn't walked with us. There's no temptation that we can come to him with and say, like, I know you don't get this one. Yes, he does. He knows it. He knows our struggles and everything about us on every level, guys. And so if he knows us that well, guys, can we trust and understand that when we come to him, he hears us. He doesn't just hear us with his ears, but he's like, I'm with you. When we cry out to God, the Holy Spirit is like, I hear you. I will bring your bring you comfort. I will bring you peace. I will bring you power. I will bring you courage. I will bring you whatever you need because I know exactly what you need, even more than you do. Last verse here, Hebrews. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Guys, there's not one thing that we cannot bring to God. And can I tell you that as we contemplate that and we think about that and we think that all that Jesus went through in his life and all that he did for us, we don't have much to bring him, but what we are capable of giving him, I say we give, which is this, our whole lives. We give him everything. We say, I don't have very much, but here it is. Use it. Amen? Let's pray.